Exhale emphasize breathing, so longer exhales than inhales, which has a tendency to relax the nervous system in general. Dr. John Duyard, Phil Maffetone did a bunch of these studies back in the 90s and showed huge gains uh, in performance and recovery just by nasal breathing. Let's start with some nasal breathing. Like, let's just shut your mouth for the time being and see how fit you actually are, because this is where our litmus test is on understanding fitness. The one thing that we do know is that it doesn't matter if you have an objective or subjective taxation of your nervous system. The single greatest way of resetting the nervous system is through breathing. Really what we're looking at is our body's ability to adapt and how resilient is my system? So how much stress can I really subject it to before it starts breaking down? Hey everybody, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Pekulski. As always, this podcast is evolving and we're always looking to bring you the greatest amount of value possible to ultimately allow you to live your greatest life in a body of love. And as the audience continues to evolve, as my desires continue to evolve, what I really think this podcast represents is, is this bridge between muscle and performance and longevity. And, and longevity can mean as much as Health. It can mean vitality. It can mean feeling amazing. It can mean connecting deeply with yourself. Whatever ultimately it means to you to live truly a life that you love. And I think a lot of people maybe go back and forth between, hey, do I really love my life? And to start having ways and resources to analyze, um, hey, do I love my life? And what aspects of my life don't I love? And, and which aspects can I improve? I hope you all take an empowered mindset to realize literally anything going on in your life. You can change. You can change your perception. You can change your actions. You can change your habits. You can change your beliefs. So much you can change. One of the things that I've started doing recently is really starting to look at beliefs through the lens of these changeable systems that either serve us or they don't. And so if you have some maybe challenges you're experiencing in your life, perhaps it's time to start questioning your beliefs. Start questioning what you've always believed to be true, because oftentimes this is where our pain exists, right? This is where our pain comes from, is this rigidities that we build into our life. Like, oh, this is the way I'm supposed to be, or this is the way people are supposed to treat me, or this is the way the, the government's supposed to be, or this is the way the world is going to be. And the more rigid we are to those beliefs, oftentimes we cause ourselves a lot of pain. Now, some of those things are, are worthwhile beliefs that are ultimately very important to uphold. And so it's not necessary to always change your beliefs, but sometimes it's good to question them. And questioning them requires a high degree of awareness, a high degree, degree of self-awareness, becoming aware of what you're thinking minutes, 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 what you're doing minutes, minutes, minutes. And ultimately, to become the best version of yourself, it has to be a life worth living that's analyzed, right? So a, a, a life worth living is one that's constantly reflected upon and analyzed from a perspective of how am I showing up in the areas of my life that matter to me most? And so I thought I'd sh share that little mental framing for you first that I've been including with all of my coaches, uh, all my clients. Just start identifying the areas or avatars in your life that are important to you. So it may be family, it may be fitness, it may be finances, it may be uh, community and leadership and all these th different potential sub areas that you can uh, say, hey, how am I doing in this area? And then reflect on it day to day. Don't reflect on it every month or every quarter, reflect on it every day. How do I show up today? As a dad, how did I show up today as, a, as an athlete? How did I show up today as a partner? How did I show up today in my business? And if you can't be honest with yourself, then you certainly won't progress. 
I'm verbally one of these people in the fitness industry trying to advocate people to meditate, you know, even in the smallest amount. I've seen tremendous benefits in my life and my ability to think and remain calm. I'd like to just have you kind of go through some of the results, perhaps, or the benefits you're seeing of people actually going away and doing these non-sleep types of relaxation. And is that actually quantifying or quantifiably changing the brain? And if so, is there any type of duration you've seen and perhaps the duration it takes to unwire that stuff? Like if I stop meditating for a certain amount of time, is it there or do, how long does it take to go away? Yeah. So I'm happy to dive deep into this topic and I'll do my best to throw out some actionable resources as I go because I, I know that that's often what people are looking for. So just really briefly, so my lab works on things like visual repair and regeneration of you know damaged brains. And we also work on separately on stress and also what I would call optimal performance, how to, how to leverage the nervous system for optimal performance. Everyone knows the power of sleep, right? Nowadays, because of Matt Walker's great book and because of all the discussion about sleep, people are kind of obsessed with sleep, something that bodybuilders have known about for a long, long time, right? It's interesting because there's been so much discussion about sleep that now people have sleep-related anxiety. People think, you know, that people have trouble sleeping. So my lab doesn't work on sleep. Stanford's got a great sleep lab. There are other great sleep labs out there, of course. My laboratory has built a platform for measuring stress and measuring performance in, we use an animal model or the mouse because we can do genetic manipulations. And then we also have a lab specifically look at humans. So people come into my lab, they put on VR goggles, we wire them up to a large number of different technologies to measure neural activation and, and their physiology. And then we give them experiences that for them represent mildly to severely stressful kind of pain points, things like diving with great white sharks, snakes, spiders, heights, claustrophobia, you know. Now, and we look at people who have generalized anxiety. We put people through these experiences, not because we want to terrorize them or startle them, and we don't do that. What we do is we put them through those experiences because we want to get a sense of how their nervous system reacts to novel stimuli, how it reacts to boring stimuli, how they react and how their brain is managing these states of, of mind or states of being generally. You know, on the surface, it looks like stress and fear, but Really, what we're trying to do is we're trying to tease out how their physiology works. Think of this a little bit like if I were going to draw a parallel to the physical fitness space, it's a little bit like strength, power, speed, flexibility, mobility, you know, and kind of conditioning. You know, there are a lot of aspects to what you say muscle, right? There are a lot of aspects to the mind. And so we're trying to, and how the, the mind reacts to different scenarios. So that's what we're trying to do. We get their baseline measurements. Then what we do is we give them one of three non sleep deep relaxation protocols. Now, this could be called meditation, but here's the problem with studying meditation in the laboratory. Meditation is hard to what we say call operationalize because there's so many variables, you know, eyes open, eyes closed, third eye center focused or not, lotus position or standing, sitting, you know, and what ends up happening when you're working with the general population coming into your lab and doing experiments is we need to standardize things as much as possible. So I'm not trying to pull it away from the naming of meditation, but I call it non-sleep deep rest. And so we have three protocols. One is a protocol that resembles something that your listeners may be familiar with, which is yoga nidra, which literally means yoga sleep, where you lie down, there's no movement involved, you're supposed to stay awake, and you attend to a script. The script walks you through two things that are very important. One is exhale emphasized breathing, so longer exhales than inhales, which has a tendency to relax the nervous system in general. And the other thing that it does is it walks you, it directs your attention to say the surface of your body, just your hands, just your face, 
the, your entire body contact with the floor. And then it starts moving your perception out further and further into the room where the room is relative to the, the lab, to the school, etc. So this is the power of the human mind to scale our kind of focus of attention. So it does that. And what we find is that it puts people into very deep states of relaxation. Practitioners of yoga nidra, of which I am, are familiar with the fact that even um, though you stay awake, when you do this, you emerge from a 10 to 30 minute session of yoga nidra, exceptionally relaxed and clear as if you had slept for many hours. And here's what's interesting. I'll just kind of, you know, give you all the information on, on this first. So I'll talk about the other two protocols. So yoga nidra is a way that you can actually recover sleep that you're not getting. This is a, and we know this because of the states of mind that it puts you into foremost, the brain waves that, that it activates. Second of all, it has this incredible capacity to build up dopamine reserves in the area of the brain called the, the basal ganglia. Now, this is work that was done from a laboratory in Scandinavia that the data are a little complicated as they came through in the paper. So this paper got missed by a lot of people. But basically, the lying still component, all right, the non, the, the total non-action combined with wakefulness builds up these reserves of dopamine in the in the striatum and in the in the basal ganglia. And this is more dopamine isn't always good. But in this case, it's good. What it does is it seems to reset the circuitry for action in a very powerful way. And I'd be happy to del- uh, send you the study and reference it because I don't want to gloss over it too, you know, at too much of a surface level. But when I mean, they use a sort of competitive binding of a radioactive ligand, and they, it gets a little bit down in the weeds. And so, but it's a beautiful study. And so it really appears that these non-sleep deep relaxation states are very powerful for resetting physical capacity and mental capacity. And then here's what's really interesting is when we and others do the follow-up on these nidra-like protocols and people have done them, two things happen. First of all, they can go back into stressful scenarios or what would be stressful scenarios and manage themselves much better. And they also become better at transitioning into sleep. So one thing that I'm really excited about is building protocols that get people better at sleeping. You know, everyone's told you got to eat right, sleep right, and exercise. And here's what that looks like. But a big part of you know, my mission lately is to figure out food and exercise. It's kind of like there's a willpower step, right? And the study of willpower is its own thing. But sleep is a tricky one because you can't will yourself to sleep. So how can you get better at sleeping? And I, this now this is just personal anecdote. So when I wake up, if I don't feel rested or I feel like I haven't slept enough, I'll do a 30 minute nidra protocol, this deep relaxation protocol. And I emerge from that feeling like I slept 10 hours deep. It's amazing. And my own subjective experience is also that if I do this for 10 minutes before, say, public speaking or 10 minutes before physical activity, then I feel so much better easily. You know, I would, you know, again, it's anecdotal. Now, in the laboratory, we see people go into these very deep states of relaxation. So it mimics sleep and it's completely cost free, which is great. There are scripts available on YouTube. My lab's got one that we've been giving people who come in and are subjects in the lab. I'd be happy to provide a link to that because it's, it's a little bit longer than most, but. If I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm having trouble falling back asleep, I'll do one of these. So, so tools to get better at sleeping, tools to recover rest that you're not able to get through sleep because you've got parents and busy people and there's all these contradictory messages out there. You know, you got to grind, you got to take care of your kids and yourself and exercise. You should wake up at 4.30 in the morning, but wait, you need to sleep or you're going to get dementia and fall apart and be a, a wreck. And I think sleep is critical. Sleep is the way that our mind gets reorganized and is able to sequence things properly. 
right? And at a neurochemical level, it's, you know, rolling adenosine back uphill and doing a bunch of things important at that level too. So that's one protocol. Yeah. Have you ever heard of anybody doing these yoga nidras for extended periods of time, like in, in the realm of eight hours instead of sleeping? So it's a small subset of yogis or, or people who are claimed to be uh, spiritually advanced, enlightened people who are doing what they tell, what they, what they say is these extended yoga nidras where they can literally sleep for eight hours, quote unquote, sleep while still being conscious and waking up feeling exponentially better, but still being able to do things in, with their conscious mind while their body's resting. Has anybody ever done any quantification of that? I'm not aware of any. It's interesting you bring this up. When I was growing up, I, I was really involved in the Muay Thai community for a while. And my teacher, he insisted that he didn't sleep. He, would say he was an Indian guy, had been a pit fighter in Thailand, and then came over here and you know, went through the university system. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, I, just, I can just put myself into deep relaxation. I'm not aware. You know, I think accessing deep sleep is, is important. Now, Nidra is there's a whole field of, of people that work on this and I can provide some references to some, the, the one, I have no, you know, commercial affiliation, any of these groups, but the Kamini Desai, D-E-S-A-I, and I think it's her father, Amrit, have, have really pioneered yoga nidra practices in the US. And they are big proponents of the idea that if you do this, you can do it for deep relaxation, you can do it to improve sleep, and you can in addition, they, there is an intention component. So intentions is kind of getting out there on the edge of what neuroscience can really understand, but but it relates to the second protocol that we use. So intentions, so sometimes in a state of deep relaxation, the Nidra script will instruct you to make a, some positive statement that, you know, like, like I am, I'm relaxed and happy and productive or something. I'm, I am being, you know, kind of surface level about this. You can make one that's more profound than that, but those things are pretty good. Most people would want them. So and it starts to look a little bit like self-hypnosis. And the reason I mentioned hypnosis is that that's the second protocol that we examine. Hypnosis, people, when they hear hypnosis, they think of, you know, stage hypnosis, like somebody like, you know, with the tick-tocking of a, of a pendant and the person cracking like a duck or something on stage. There's a whole thing related to stage hypnosis. We're, we're talking about medical and clinical hypnosis. So Stanford's Department of Psychiatry, we have a guy there, his name is David Spiegel, is world-class at, at understanding the neuroscience, the brain states of hypnosis, has used hypnosis for addiction and trauma treatment. Brilliant person, brilliant work, serious clinician helping people with serious problems. My lab has adopted a hypnosis protocol that's really about internal control. And so it really is it looks a lot and sounds a lot like the Nidra script, but it it involves a kind of repeated intention. You could think of this as kind of like a mantra about the person's ability to to control their what we call the autonomic nervous system, so heart rate, breathing, sweating, aka stress, or their response to the outside world. You know, we have this incredible system, which is called the autonomic nervous system, because which means automatic, that is designed to match our level of alertness or calmness and our attention, where we place our, our, our mental attention, to the demands of the outside world. And meditation and sleep and yoga nidra are the few times in your 24-hour cycle where you're not attending to anything in the outside world besides your own internal real estate. And this, this hypnosis protocol is designed to get people to see and recognize that internal real estate. There's nothing mystical about this, right? If I pay attention to my heart rate or my breathing, it's like just paying attention to my internal real estate and to realize that despite the name autonomic, which is a misnomer, that there are access points through which we can control our internal real estate. So that's the hypnosis protocol. And then the third protocol is a breathing protocol. 
We consulted with Brian McKenzie and some of the other people in the breathwork community to develop protocols that I know Brian was on your show. It gets down deep into we run people's carbon dioxide tolerance test. We find out what cadence they need to do if it's a 733 or so that that's probably too much to get into right here. All three of these protocols help people realize the, this fundamental truth, which is, and there are chapters about this in neuroscience textbooks, which is that we have this thing called interoception. I can focus on the outside world or I can focus on the inside world. And also that there's this system of self-regulation that we call the autonomic nervous system. But a big part of you know why I go on, why I'm on your podcast and, and, and doing education on Instagram and this kind of thing is to tell people, look, there are access points. There are ways in which you can learn to control this so-called autonomic nervous system. And those access points are very real. Other animals use them. They know how to use them. Humans somehow we missed, we didn't get the instruction book and we're trying to learn how to use them. So anyway, those are, those are the protocols. I'm curious actually what happens. I know you immediately switched from the nose being plugged and then immediately did um, 10 days of your mouth covered, did you not? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So the, the lucky thing is after this 10 days of abject misery of just breathing through through the mouth, you lose 40% more water breathing through the mouth too. So we were just constantly thirsty uh, just the whole time. Um, but we were able to remove those plugs and nasal breathe. You know, not every single breath was taken through the nose, but the vast majority. I was wearing a little tape during the day, at night, all night, wearing tape. And all that snoring totally disappeared. All that sleep apnea completely disappeared to, to zero within a few days. None. Stress levels plummeted. We Our heart rate variability soared 150%. I mean, completely transformed. And again, it wasn't just a subjective marker. It was, this is what all the machines were showing us was, was happening to our bodies by simply switching the pathway through which we breathe. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the nose when you are breathing, because I think that's important. And, and what you guys saw after taking out the, the silicone implants, like, I'd love to just kind of have you unravel that, just give people a bit of a visual as to what's happening inside the nose when you're, one, first when it's clogged, and then second, yeah. maybe let's walk through what it, what it should be. So the, the problem with mouth breathing is you're not breathing through the nose. And this is this wonderful ornate organ. If you were to like cut my head in half here, the sinus passages, all the nose would take up about the size of, of a racquetball. Okay, so uh, the sinuses go down here, they go up here, and air, when it enters the nose, a lot of people think it just enters straight into the nostrils, back to the throat. It has to run this gauntlet, this maze through all of these tissues. And as air enters in through this, this maze, through, through the turbinates, it is heated up, it is filtered, it is moistened, and it's conditioned and pressurized. So all of those things make this air so much easier to absorb. So you get just breathing through the nose, you will get 20% more oxygen equivalent breaths through the mouth. Just breathing through the nose, and not to mention nitric oxide, six-fold increase. So there's so many reasons we've developed this ornate, crazy structure at the front of our faces. And the fact that 25 to 50% of the population just aren't breathing out of it at all, I think is one of the reasons why so many people are sick. I really believe that. So when you saw the bump post this 10-day trial, when you saw the bump in HRV, it was 150%. How was your kind of day-to-day -day functioning relative to the day when your nose was plugged? Like, so basically what I'm looking at, was there, was there a noticeable quantitative difference in mental functioning and energy levels? Were you seeing you know, a lot of energy levels during the day when you were um, just breathing orally? 
absolutely profound. Again, these were subjective markers. A lot of people say, oh, that's just your opinion, psychosomatic, placebo. But that's not what the machines were saying. And, and so to have that data from the, from the machines, I think, is so important. But it was night and day. I mean, it really was. I don't know how else to say it. We were also looking at our performance, athletic performance, mouth breathing versus nasal breathing. Dr. John Duyard, Phil Maffetone did a bunch of these studies back in the 90s and showed huge gains uh, in performance and recovery just by nasal breathing. And we saw the same thing. They weren't as pronounced as, as what Duyard found, but I think I, I gained about 12%, you know, which, which is pretty crazy. I don't know any competitor who, who wouldn't want that. Uh, doing stationary bike workouts just breathing through the nose rather yeah. than the mouth. So talk, talk to you about that. So what did you experience when you're doing uh, exercise at that with, with just uh, being able to breathe through your mouth? Well, I think you go into any gym. I mean, we can't do that now in a pandemic, but just look around any park. You're going to see people jogging just. <sighs> it's just all over the place. The neighborhood gym that I go to, every time I'm in there, every single person on a stationary bike or an elliptical or jogging or lifting weights is. <sighs> thinking they're getting more oxygen into their body to give them more energy, but the opposite is happening here. And it, that's such a contrarian concept. It takes a long, took me a long time to get my head around. So, you know, I didn't feel much of a difference just breathing through my mouth on the stationary bike because you can get air in very quickly through the mouth. That's why people do it. What you want is that air to be slowed down and pressurized, though. That's when you're able to work most efficiently because breathing through the nose, your heart rate is going to stay lower as the intensity of your exercise increases. And that's what performance is all about, to be able to expend less energy by doing more so you can push it even harder. So, uh, you know, mouth breathing, we were just recording data. I didn't really notice too much of a difference. In the first couple of days of switching to nasal breathing, I think my performance went down. Then about the third or fourth day, I said, wow, things started picking up. And I just noticed I could push so hard and have my heart rate stay so much lower than it would be mouth breathing. I heard you mention something along the lines of trying to keep your respiration rate about six per minute while you push hard. If that was you or if that was a cycling team, can you... Tell us about that example. Yeah, that that was me. So when you when you're really pushing it, uh, you know, you can breathe forty times, fifty times a minute. I think some boxers breathe a hundred times a minute when they're just really exhausted. But we want. I wanted to see what is the point where you could breathe, start breathing too slow, that it would be injurious to your body. So we know that at rest, breathing at a rate of about six times per minute has pronounced vast benefits. Um, so the more that I was trying to breathe slower and slower, keeping my heart rate at 136, I, I was wondering, I was like, am I depriving my body of oxygen? How, how little is too little? So I had a pulse ox on and I was like, okay, if I'm breathing normally working out at heart rate about 136 and I'm breathing about 40 times a minute, 30, 35, 40 times a minute, what if I slowed it to huge breaths six times a minute? you know, six times less than I would otherwise, what would happen to my oxygen? And what would happen to my energy? My oxygen didn't move, it actually bumped up a little bit by breathing this slow, which is so counterintuitive, because you're, you're operating more efficiently. And an analogy I use in the book, it's like, imagine breathing like rowing a boat. So you can row a boat across a lake and just take a zillion different strokes um, you know, over and over again, or you can take very fluid, slow and strong strokes. 
If you think of breathing that way, um, it, to me, that helped contextualize how much more efficient it was. It absolutely did. It did. And if you look at it from a mechanical perspective, breathing simply in this slow and controlled way, especially down to the diaphragm, creates a stable trunk and spine. And the less extraneous movement you're going to create the trunk and spine, the more efficient your movement ultimately is. So I've been experimenting with this for a long time with running and running at my maximum speed, trying to go as slow as I can, nasal breathing. So it's probably in the realm of six to eight breaths a minute, maybe even less. Uh, and just like just like you did, going as slow as you can, your perceived exertion, I think, is a fraction. And even when you stop, it's like you didn't do anything. Most people run and they're out of breath. They're gas. They're, they have to, you know, they have to huff for oxygen or to put off gas of CO2. But I've been doing the same thing and realized that the perceived effort is effectively gone to zero. It's tremendous. Yeah, and it, it's something that I think that, that coaches used to train runners in, in the 50s. They were at Yale. There were these stories about how these coaches would make the, the sprinters take a mouthful of water and a uh, very prescribed amount of water, run around the track, and they'd have to spit the same amount of water in the cup to just train them to nasal breathe. And, and you see, but for some reason, you know, other training methods came about and those kind of went by the wayside. But I just heard from Anders Olsen, breathing therapist in, in Sweden. He, uh, one of his clients is an ultra marathoner that he was nasal breathing through an entire ultra marathon. He said his heart rate didn't change the, the entire time. You know, he has so much more energy than he would otherwise. And that's, that's due to heart rate, but it's also due to, to moisture breathing out through your mouth you're losing 40% more moisture. So you see these people running around with those belts with like the thick little water bottles and stuff. You know, that's cool if they want to do that, but I don't think you really need that if you just shut your mouth. Talk about this CO2 or this max uh, exhalation test. Is it a forceful exhalation? Is it just a prolonged one as slow as you can make it? Prolong out your nose as long as you possibly can without pausing, swallowing, stopping, or taking any any air at all. It's just a long, long, slow, slow trickle. Done over time, repetitively, or just once? So like, is it like- Just once. Just one. So how many seconds are you getting on that? When I started this test, when I first did this, and I had been using breathing for quite some time at that point, I was at about 40 seconds, which if my memory serves correct, I was probably around a 40 second bulk test at that point too. 45, 50 seconds. But- so is that from inhalation or from complete exhalation already? Like are you taking a huge breath in and letting it out slowly? or what? You take a full breath in. So it's you, you have to be calm. You want to be calm for a couple minutes. Spend some time just being calm, seated or laying down. And then it's four breaths. And off the top of the fourth breath, you hit the timer. And you start to trickle out the air as slow as you possibly can. And that is going to give us an accurate assessment as to where you're actually at within dealing with carbon dioxide in a global sense at that moment. Now, that changes throughout the day. And this is where a lot of the ideas around training can play in. But back to your question, I went from about 40 seconds to I can be upwards of two minutes at this point. Wow. So, yeah, which is a very long time. And the only people I know doing longer than that are actually professional or high-level waterman freedivers who are actually invested specifically into high, high levels, you know, of this stuff. I'm not trying to necessarily push limits like they are in breath holding capacity. I'm more or less trying to find out where I can actually fit this into the current paradigm of somebody who's actually not investing in specificity, right? 
I'm I'm like a, you know, like, Hey, I work out, I go to jujitsu, you know, I do a bunch of different stuff. I prefer not to specialize in in being a free diver. What type of benefits would someone experience from this CO2 tolerance? (laughs) Well, you know, it's a loaded question, but I know this is how I get people to buy into this stuff, right? Because I'm a huge believer and I want you to uh, being the expert to tell me why. Yeah. Anything and everything you're actually trying to achieve is related more than likely to CO2 tolerance, whether that be on a physical level. I don't, you know, so if you're a bodybuilder, the idea is, is that, you know, you want to put on more muscle and look more lean, right? Like, or you want to be more lean. Well, oxygen provides a huge factor in that, right? And then from a health standpoint, talking about the brain, like, hey, do you want to feel calmer? Do you want to sleep better? Do you want to not be as reactive? Do you want to have healthier relationships? This all plays a role in how you handle CO2. We've found that there's direct relationship between low, low CO2 tolerance and reactivity, anxiety, you know, and people with pretty off, you know, they're pretty off with inside the spectrum of reactivity, right? High sympathetic arousal kind of stuff. Yeah, very high sympathetic arousal. Like people who have some serious stuff going on, you know, from a mechanical standpoint, movement standpoint, you want to move better. Yoga is the oldest you know, foundational breathwork practice that's ever existed. It's also the oldest movement practice that's existed. They figured this shit out a long time ago and knew that if they actually controlled breathing through positional work, that you were actually maximizing how the body handles oxygen. And this is where CO2 plays its role is that CO2, like, you know, so the Buteco method popularizes through Patrick McEwen with understanding carbon dioxide's relationship to this, but this is something every medical practitioner, anybody in exercise science actually got a little bit of a dosing of, which was the Bohr effect and how carbon dioxide plays a role in how oxygen is actually dispersed throughout the system. And so if I'm an overbreather or I have a poor CO2 tolerance, my breath centers are set up in my brainstem and those are reactionary first respondent to whether I'm dealing with a lot of carbon dioxide, or I'm overloaded cognitively, stressed out, doesn't matter what type of stress, panic, maybe too much work, maybe too much emotional with life. This then lowers your ability to tolerate that. And so your respiration rate increases. So that higher respiration rate blows off more carbon dioxide. And so when I blow off more carbon dioxide, I become more alkaline and therefore I'm not actually buffering off or I'm not actually using the oxygen in an efficient manner. Well, that's what Patrick talks about a lot, right? Within the um, oxygen advantage, talking about that CO2 is actually the trigger for hemoglobin to off-gas oxygen into the tissues. And people don't understand that, right? Everyone's trying to get all this extra oxygen in, right? When they should be trying to accumulate CO2. So how do you directly implement that into an athletic endeavor? So if you're looking at yourself trying to improve your ability to do jujitsu or run or do you know pool work or, or whatever you're doing, how exactly are you implementing that? Are you implementing it you know before the event, during the event, you know intermittently? Now, what's the best way to you know optimize this opportunity we have with increasing your CO2? Is it just like hey, I want to get my CO2 kind of as low as I possibly can tolerate all the time, or is it you know I want to do it intermittently throughout the event? All of the above, but. Typically, we start with, hey, other than a swimmer, let's start with some nasal breathing. Like, let's just shut your mouth for the time being and see how fit you actually are. Because this is where our litmus test is on understanding fitness and where your actual aerobic, not necessarily capacity, but efficiency 
sits. And so when we have a lot of these athletes just shut their mouths, they don't like it because they've got to take about 10 steps backwards in trying to understand how fit they are. So A, getting people to understand that, but B, it's like, hey, how can we optimize you prior to this and get your system, your nervous system actually prepared for training or whatever it is you're going to get into. And that's where, you know, pre-work comes into, you know, you can have a breath practice prior to getting yourself kind of ramped and focused, kind of think of a lion right before it, like, you know, gets ready to attack something or an animal that, you know, is about to hunt something. They're actually not only visually doing things, but they're actually, their breath is doing things as well. And they're doing this in eight. Mm. And we'd actually be doing this if we were out in the wild still too, you know, to a large degree. Yeah, is there anything that should be done through mouth breathing? Like, is there ever a time in any yeah. endeavor, any event oh, yeah. where you should switch to mouth breathing? Oh, yeah. It's not a lost thing. It is a real thing. And it should happen. You know, at least we think about 80% of training should be nasal breathing. The other 20% should probably be pretty high intensity enough to elicit a response for mouth breathing or... If I'm in competition, I should be eliciting that response as well because it can come with some advantages. The disadvantage to that is that we're actually requiring more carbohydrate use for it, right? So I'm becoming more anaerobic at that point as a result of these, my mouth needing to open because, you know, my mouth needing to open actually means that there's more carbon dioxide in the system, which means I'm probably less aerobic, which means I need to buffer a lot of those, you know, hydrogen ions, et cetera because of the anaerobic processes that are going on. What's your resting heart rate? Somewhere. It's not something you focus on. Is it something that would typically go down because of your tolerance to CO2? Yes, it will. The big thing we see, especially with people heart rate variability stuff, is where their, uh, their heart rate variability scores increase, right? Resting heart rate lowers. Deeper sleep, REM cycle sleep increases. Mm-hmm. How about your resonant respiration rate? Are you How many times a minute are you uh, breathing? I'm in the vicinity of six when I'm yeah. like normal. When So that's like at sleep, you'd, you'd come in around six? Uh, sleep, probably between, I'd say, four and six minutes. So to me, that's superpower, right? Like if you can get to that, that's the ideal state in my eyes for any pro athlete. Yes. And training that to get through that is building CO2 tolerance in your eyes. Is that the first and most important step? Yes, but doing it. Like the things that I use now aren't necessarily what I would be giving somebody who's just starting. You know, I look back towards history and it's like, what were they doing in yoga 5,000 years ago? And it's really basic breath practice stuff and cadence work and understanding how to control one's breathing, getting access to a diaphragm, understanding position, understanding movement. These are foundational things. And then it becomes, hey, you know, Let's do some breath hold stuff on some table work and, you know, like specifically holding for times and building really strongly building that. Although breath control itself will do that, you know, it's uh, the nasal breathing itself is going to start to lower that respiration rate, you know, for a lot of people. I mean, it changed my sleep in four weeks. You know, you just sticking to breathing through my nose and all training I did for four weeks, that changed how I slept for, that was four or five years ago now. Well, you already brought up the question that I wanted to dig into, but you answered it perfectly is I wanted to get into this reality of nasal breathing and improved CO2 tolerance being directly correlated to burning more fat as fuel, staying in the aerobic system, 
longer, which is obviously very appealing to most people in this, well, in the in the whole world, probably. Yeah, I would guess if you care about your health. Right. <laughs> yeah. So just this idea of as soon as we know we have to breathe through our mouth, now we're in an oxygen deficit, and now our body's going to switch over into a glycolytic system because it can't be in the aerobic system. Yeah, and the big problem is is that people, especially in our world, think of that as like, well, I'm not working hard enough to be anaerobic. Well, you know, it just so happens that you don't need to be working to actually make yourself use your anaerobic systems. You can literally just offload more carbon dioxide by breathing or talking like we're doing right now, and you'll inevitably end up dipping over. You have to. That's why we use metabolic carts that measure respirations, because that's our way for understanding how we actually are burning things. And so if I'm actually using the one thing responsible for governing how much carbon dioxide comes out, right? This thing doesn't. So my mouth is not. My mouth is an offloading tool. And the irony in this is that I'm actually absorbing just as much, if not better, through my nose when I inhale versus my mouth because it's clean. The immune system gets a response from it. It's also humidified. It's circulated in a different way. So the air going in is actually purified to a large degree through my nose versus my mouth, even though I can get it in quicker through my mouth. But it's the exhale that becomes that important process and it's the regulator of carbon dioxide. And so you have your own personal governing machine of that. It's like your own fingerprint. And so understanding that just because so-and-so has a massive VO2 max and I may not, that doesn't necessarily mean that I can't be efficient or just as efficient or even more efficient than that person at utilizing oxygen. So there's a two-step question coming back at you. It's like, one, what, is that, what does that breathing intervention actually look like? And, and if you could walk us through that. And then what is actually happening at the level of the nervous system when I'm doing that breath? Yeah. So, I mean, you can walk through the, the vague, I mean, you, you know, you'll just walk us through like, you know, so the audience can understand, okay, this is what I'm actually doing. Because what I'm experiencing is a little bit of fatigue, maybe a little bit of brain fog. My body kind of hurts from, you know, the hair down situation. Like it, it's, it, I'm very, um, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing hard. Like uh, uh, the way I would explain it is I've got, I'm having a very steep ascension in my training volume and intensity. So like rather than making it a less steep ascension, it's like, this is an aggressive ascension because I have an objective by this weekend, I want to hit a certain metric. Again, it may not always look like that, but Mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm pretty burnt and not that just, just as an example, but I'm curious, okay, what's the breathing intervention? And then what is that actually doing at a physiological level? Yeah, absolutely. I always like to mention too, with high performers, whether it's athletes or those who are kind of like engaging in a lot of exercise for body composition, that uh, sometimes where we are putting in a lot of effort in one place, we're going to pay the price in another area. And for short term, that's okay, right? So if I have athletes who really need to perform at their highest level, because they're looking to set an Olympic record when they get to the next Olympics, then it makes sense to have these short bursts of hardcore, insanely focused type of workout and the price that you pay is that the nervous system is going to be more taxed. You have to acknowledge too, that could that potentially lead to a faster burnout? Yes. Could it potentially lead to a higher propensity for injury? Yes. Does it necessarily mean that you're automatically going down that path? Not necessarily, but there are some things that we have to look at in terms of red flags. But regardless of that, the one thing that we do know is that it doesn't matter if you have an objective or subjective taxation of your nervous system, the single greatest way of resetting the nervous 
nervous system is through breathing. So I'll walk us through the physiology of this and then through the practical application of it. So when we think about physiology and we think about the way that our autonomic nervous system operates, and we have to remember that the autonomic nervous system, which is a part or is a system that is within our peripheral nervous system, which is a branching of all the peripheral nerves from our central nervous system. I know I realize I'm using a lot of nervous system words here, which is our brain and spinal cord. All of these are interconnected with one another. So changes in our autonomic nervous system are going to directly change our brain and, and what's happening in our spinal cord, our central nervous system, and also vice versa. These are afferent and efferent signals. So signals to and from the central nervous system. The biggest thing to keep in mind is that when we want or we identify that our sympathetic nervous system is being overly engaged, so its output is being more active, which for you, Ben, it sounds like that's the case right now. Again, not inherently a bad thing, kind of more in the short term, could be in the long term, but not inherently bad now. What we also know is that that will typically come with a suppression of our parasympathetic nervous system or our relaxation response. So the biggest mediator of our relaxation response is through our vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve. Now that's not the only nerve. We also have the glossopharyngeal nerve. We also have multiple other cranial nerves that will mediate this response, but the one that's most known and most notable would be indeed the, the vagus nerve. Now, what we know, what happens when the sympathetic nervous system is kicking into high gear, when the parasympathetic nervous system is dialing down, is that that communication pathway that's occurring via the vagus is blunted. Um, so it doesn't mean that it's fully kind of uh, just shut off, like there's no communication path there. It just means that it's significantly blunted and for good reason. So when we are engaging in a workout, when we're engaging in high performance, like we don't necessarily need our conservation system of energy, which is our parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system to be highly activated. Indeed, we want our mobilization of energy to be activated, which is indeed our sympathetic nervous system. What we will see physiologically there is kind of an immense change or a cascade of change of hormones, of glucocorticoids and neurotransmitters, all with the intention of, again, ramping up the energy systems to be mobilized and to be utilized. Now, how does that affect kind of our respiratory system and our cardiovascular system? Well, we kind of know that when we're engaging in a stress physiological or psychological heart rate amps up. And by proxy, we see heart rate variability go down. We also see respiration either go up. So it increases, or we can actually see it significantly go down. And if listeners want to know why, well, it's because a lot of times when people are, are working out, or when they are in a, experiencing an acute stressor, a lot of people will unconsciously hold their breath, which significantly reduces uh, overall respiration rate and can increase the stress response. Again, there's nuances as to whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, and, and we can parse that out. So when we're in this situation, we see these fluctuations and changes in the cardiovascular system and in our respiratory system. So if we want to reverse that signaling, so basically like we want to take that sympathetic dominant uh, experience or uh, that flow, and we want to reverse it and have it suppressed. And we want to increase parasympathetic output, which is all about recovery. It's all about conditioning after we've experienced the stimulus and response of a stressor. Well, the single greatest way to do it is through breathing. And the way that this works is directly on the cardiovascular system and then on our lungs or respiratory system. What happens when we slow our breathing down and we slow it down to a rate that's much slower than what is kind of common for people 
able to breathe at. And so just for reference, we typically, males typically will breathe at a rate of 14 to 16 breaths per minute on average throughout the day, different when we're sleeping, uh, but can be pretty comparable. Women will are slightly higher. Um, so they'll generally breathe from about 15 to as upward as, as 18 or 19 breaths per minute. Now, if we want to make a significant change to our nervous system in the immediate, what we just need to do, number one, is change the cadence of breathing. So we need to change from this 14 to 16 breaths per minute, or if you're encountering a stressor, it could be higher, could be much lower to around six breaths per minute. Now, this is just a general rule of thumb. Um, it, it, we call this sometimes a resonant rate. However, there's a much more specific way of finding a resonant rate of breathing. But in general rule of thumb, most people will see a pretty stark change in heart rate and more specifically heart rate variability when they drop down to about six breaths per minute. What does that look like practically? It could be a, an even breath, five seconds in, five seconds out. It could be an extended exhalation, which, help, which helps to more actively activate, I should say, the vagus nerve, which is be like a four second inhale, six second exhale. And really, Really, what we know is that people who have stronger autonomic control, or an easier way to put that is that they have better control of their autonomic nervous system, is we can see that when they just take a few of these breaths, they can significantly influence the metrics that I just mentioned. And that should be really the goal of everybody is to train so much resiliency within the nervous system that when they breathe at a resonant rate or a six breaths per minute, let's say rate, or even maybe a little bit lower, five and a half or five breaths per minute, that they can almost immediately significantly influence heart rate variability. So that is my number one go-to kind of in the immediate is just to engage in that type of resonant breathing. And it could be for as little as 10 seconds. It could be as much as a minute, two minutes, if not longer, if you wanted to practice. Yeah, that's so valuable. And I say to people listening, like the ability to connect into your nervous system, as you say, the ability to control your autonomic nervous system, is, it's like a muscle, right? It's the first mm -hmm. time you contracted your bicep. Did you feel it really well? Probably not. So it's going to take that daily consistent uh, execution. And the best time to do it is anchor it with your meals. So okay. I'll always anchor, you know, usually about four to five minutes of just like th three to five minutes, depending on which time I've got, I like just really slow, resonant breathing and just like so many benefits before you eat, but also just because you know, you're going to eat frequently. And it's just a great way to sit down and make sure you're present in your, in your, in your body you're, you're actually, you know, sinking that breath as well. It's a, it's a really simple practice that seems to make such a difference to me. And the way I show up in life is, you know, the way I digest food, the way my body seems to respond to food, my energy after I eat always just seems to be so consistent just with such a simple practice. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. You know, one of the interesting things that I have really paid a lot more attention to over the last few years is priming the nervous system for digestion. A lot of people um, think of the autonomic nervous system as two branches, the sympathetic and parasympathetic, but we miss probably the most important branch of the autonomic nervous system, which is the enteric nervous system or our gastrointestinal tract. Its biggest mediator is via the vagus. And when we can activate the vagus significantly, which is activating our parasympathetic nervous system, then we know that we're going to have better digestion. It's going to lead to less fermentation of uh, gut bacteria and that creates dysbiosis and can cause a plethora of you know health related problems it's just an incredibly valuable tool that people shouldn't look over and i've just found like for me and my family with my wife and two kids like this is what we do to prime ourselves before meals and it may sound a little bit odd but i mean i find that digestion has improved so much more significantly than if i sit down especially if i'm in a more sympathetic state to eat um, then it just sits in ferments in the gut because i I, it, it, everything's shunted.
The second thing I want to start measuring as a, anyone who's a peak performer or anyone who aspires to live and, and breathe at their best uh, is heart rate variability. And you guys have ta- heard us talk about this at length. And HRV is an incredibly valuable measure of what's happening inside of our body with respect to the autonomic nervous system. So heart rate variability allows me to determine where my body sits and why that's relevant to you. And, and I'm not going to go into length about HRV, but if you want to listen to it, please check out the recent podcast with Dr. Jay Wiles. He's an absolute brilliant man with a wealth of information, and he provided incredible insight into HRV. But really what we're looking at is our body's ability to adapt and how resilient is my system. So how much stress can I really subject it to before it starts breaking down? And stress, you have to look at in multiple kind of arenas, right? So you look at acute stress. So your body can respond to a one-time bout versus multiple bouts versus chronic bouts of stress. And all of those are very different timelines, right? Anyone can respond to an acute stress, a single workout, a single stressor. But you repeat that over four or five days, that's a whole different thing. And now you accumulate that over three months or six months. And now you've created a chronic situation that maybe you haven't allowed your body to recover from. So HRV is a very good measure of, of our body's adaptability to these types of stress. Now, why do you care? Well, ultimately, this should be driving your training decisions. This should be driving your nutrition decisions, your recovery decisions. How much do you lean on your recovery modalities on a regular basis? So most people, as they aspire to build their body or get better at sport, just focus on the gas pedal. They're like, hey, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to outwork everybody. And I was guilty of this for a long time. And if someone had just said, hey, gas pedal is wonderful. You need to get better and better and better hammering on that gas pedal. But here's what we're going to give you. We're going to give you the ability to use a brake. And so when you hit in those, those tough corners and when you have to slow down, you have the ability to do that because gas pedal is wonderful during the day, during training and when you need it. But it's terrible when you're trying to recover and ultimately rest and sleep. So learning how to turn those systems on almost like light switches or maybe dimmer switches more effectively uh, is a really important trait. So you should be training your parasympathetic inputs as much as you're training your sympathetic inputs, your sympathetic drive. And sympathetic drive is what we do in the gym. Parasympathetic is what we're doing to stop that system, right? Just to turn down that dimmer switch and turn on the new one. And you guys have heard me talk at length about what those practices are, but really it comes down to controlling your breath, controlling your muscular system and allowing the muscular system to relax. And maybe if you ask Andrew Huberman, he'll tell you about the visual system. And he's, if you're not already listening to Huberman podcast, uh, it's incredible. And the visual system by, by taking a wide panoramic gaze can take you out of a sympathetic state. So you know, whether it be looking at the TV, looking at a computer or looking at your phone, all those are very sympathetically oriented states based on your visual system. So think that through the next time you're trying to ultimately amplify the volume or the brightness, we'll say, uh, inaccurately maybe, of your parasympathetic nervous system. We want to turn that up as much as possible and teach the body how to turn off. Moving along from HRV and lab work, the first thing that I'm looking at, whether my objective is being the best bodybuilder in the world or a great athlete or just being really, really healthy and living a long and strong life, is my aerobic system. So the aerobic system is something you guys have heard me talk about a lot lately, especially if you're part of my VIP newsletter where I send out one email at least a week with content that I'm really researching. And you know, my la- latest area of interest, as you could imagine, is peak performance. And it's, it's like, what are all those things that go into 
working at a really high level and like how can I push something for a really long time um, and ultimately see how see where my breaking point is and that's something I've been playing with lately um, but ultimately the aerobic system is the key to recovery and it's not just because I'm, I'm trying to do long endurance races it's it's whether you're trying to build muscle or you're trying to get strong your aerobic system is incredibly important so adding in some consistent higher duration, lower intensity aerobic work, what we'll call zone two fitness is going to be imperative on so many levels to decreasing inflammation, driving up mitochondrial efficiency, improving aerobic fitness, um, ultimately improving fat expenditure, fat oxidation, that rest and and during exercise. And and for anyone who wants to get lean or wants to improve their fitness, anyone, I've I've got a lot of questions back to me. It's like, oh, this is for me. Anyone should be be pushing this system. And, And when I say push, it doesn't mean effort. It's duration, right? More duration. And what happens with effort is you can sustain the same perceived out, but actually increase the amount of work. So at some point, your efficiency gets better. And you're doing more work with with lower perceived effort. And that's kind of the ideal scenario is we get more and more fit, more efficient. So the aerobic system is something that a lot of people lately, for whatever reason, have been overlooking. I know there's some people who perpetuated that, but it's a, it's a mistake. And, and if you're trying to grow in any way, I highly suggest you include aerobic training. And again, how much? Depends. Where are you, right? So one of my gifts in life as a bodybuilder was I always had fantastic aerobic fitness. Did I do a lot of cardio? Maybe. Not a huge amount. I probably did it you know, three days a week consistently off-season, then five or six days a week when, I'm, when I was prepping. But um, you know, at least three days a week, and I, and I was very blessed to have great aerobic fitness because I trained really fast also. So that kept my aerobic fitness really, really efficient. So that, that comes to, to the next point on my list here, and that's energy production. And a lot of us lack energy, don't we? A lot of us lack the ability to get up and go, the abundance of energy ultimately that I think is a calling card of people who are ultimately successful is the ability to stand up and do anything at any time and not feel like it's labor. It's this, this conversation around having enough energy for two, right? I want to have enough energy for me and for you. I want to have enough energy for me and for my kids. And do I always? No. And, and I would like to. And just why? this is becoming such a um, interest of mine, a passion of mine is like, I want to have an abundance of energy until ripe old ages. And that comes down to this zone two efficiency. This comes down to also including some anaerobic high intensity training to ultimately improve the mitochondrial biogenesis and allow, allow our bodies to produce more energy from more ATP ultimately from the, the carbohydrates and fat we consume and we store. And energy production is a big, big one. And I think there's there's definitely some some supplemental substrates you want to be taking. And it's co- it's coenzyme Q10 and it's magnesium and, and certainly salt plays a big role in that. And uh, oxygen and CO2 play a huge role in that. And that uh, kind of segues into our next topic that you should be adhering to. You guys have heard me talk about this at nauseum, so I won't spend too much time on his breath work. And again, if you haven't understood breath work to this point, you're missing the podcast. Head over to listen to Patrick McEwen, who's the creator of the Oxygen Advantage, an absolute wealth of information. And another one of my favorites, two of my favorites, Brian McKenzie, who if you don't follow Brian McKenzie on social media, he's got one of my favorite accounts. He gives so much useful information on his uh, Instagram account. And James Nestor, the author of the book Breath, is a fantastic resource for everything to do with breathing. He's, he's a journalist who decided to research breath because he saw so much benefit ubiquitously for everyone. And if you, I'll say if you're not a master of, of breathing and you aspire to have a great life, you 
you should start doing more research. And my, one of the blessings that's come on my life right now, if you guys are curious what I'm up to kind of behind the scenes is I'm building courses. I'm actually in the process of building about six or seven different courses. And it's been a beautiful gift to be able to build a course. And if you're interested in learning something at a high level, I strongly suggest you just set the goal of building a course, because if you're really committed uh, to doing a great job, the amount of time that goes into researching is uh, tremendous. And you end up learning a lot. Like I've read hundreds of research papers lately on kind of all the, the latest research to do you know, the first courses I'm building, obviously breathwork and HRV as I speak of here. This is this peak performance manual that ultimately I'm putting together that you guys will hear more about in the future. So understanding the dynamic of carbon dioxide and oxygen as it implicates into energy production and brain function and the autonomic nervous system is very important. And learning how to control your CO2 learning how to control, increase your tolerance to CO2 is nothing short of a performance necessity. Thanks for listening to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. For full episode guides with important takeaways and bonus resources, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash learn. If you enjoy the show and find value in the content, please subscribe, share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who would benefit from this content. Leave us a review and support our sponsors. You can see the full list of show sponsors, discounts, and get exclusive muscle intelligence deals at muscleintelligence.com slash resources. To join our private community and get VIP access to my master classes, upcoming muscle camps, and other resources that we don't post anywhere else, head to muscleintelligence.com slash community. Most of all, thank you very much for your trust, for your time, and most importantly, for supporting health and fitness in this world. Enjoy your day. and I look forward to seeing you here next week. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.